There are four sections probably in your Bibles. Um, They're called Jesus Heals a Centurion Servant, Jesus Raises a Widow's Son, Messengers from John the Baptist, and A Sinful Woman Forgiven. Depending on your translation, those are the ones that are in mine. Um, And probably if you have a Bible in front of you, gosh, I wish I had done slides now. It's probably going to be different from what you're reading. So I'm reading out of um, the ESV. So if you're reading it on your phone, you can follow along. Otherwise, you're going to have some slight changes in words. Anyway, I thought that these subtitles were kind of boring. So I made up my own. So we're going to call section one, just say the word. A Roman centurion servant is healed. Section two is stop that funeral. (laughs) Jesus raises a widow's son from the dead. Section three is the expected one. John the Baptist's disciples confirm Jesus' identity. And then section four, this one was my favorite to name. I had two titles. The banquet crasher. So we're not a wedding crasher, but a banquet crasher. Or another option was how rude. Um, A sinful woman washes Jesus' feet at a Pharisee's dinner party. So with those sections in mind that are kind of mental cues for us as we read along, just to break it up because it's so darn long, um, we'll start in verse 1 of chapter 7. So this is section 1, just say the word. Jesus had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. For he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Section 2. Stop that funeral. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nine, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came up and touched the bier, and the bearer stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. Fear seized all of them, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us, and God has visited his people. And this report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all the surrounding country. 
section 3, the expected one. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look to another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or are you the expected one, or shall we look for another? In that hour, Jesus healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. And, the, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Verse 24. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves. Ouch. They rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. Jesus continues in verse 31, To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Section 4. Finally, we're here. Toward the end. (laughs) The banquet crasher. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet and her tear, wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. 
When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. That's such a long chapter. Luke was long-winded. So am I. So get ready. Um, So in our first week of studying the Gospel of Luke, I set out to give us some ideas of what I learned about studying the Gospels, um, about appreciating each one of them as a single unit before trying to compare and contrast them. And I recapped a little bit of what I'd learned in um, an undergraduate religious studies class that was called Portraits of Jesus. So, because our sections tonight have a couple of parables, illustrations, metaphors, pictures that Jesus is use, Jesus uses to teach people, um, and because we're getting into like the pretty heavy parable sections of Luke. I decided that I would give you a similar recap of a different class that I took called Parables of Jesus, Portraits of Jesus, Parables of Jesus. Um, This one I just took a couple summers ago in my grad program, so that was fun. Um, So here are two strategies that I learned about studying parables. Um. The first one is don't allegorize. This is like a really fancy word. But I I thought, like, what in the world does that mean, allegorize? What is that supposed to mean? Have you heard of the word allegory? So apparently there was this time in Christian history when people thought it was a really good idea to equate every little piece of a parable with something in real life. So, for example, tonight... The creditor in the story with the two debtors must be God, and the debtor must be the debtor with fifty owes fifty must be Simon, and the one who owes five hundred must be the woman, and the fifty and five hundred must mean something really specific, and we're just gonna guess why the numbers are fifty and five hundred and like make a lot of weird leaps. This one it's it doesn't seem so weird to make that leap. Um but there are other ones where I read some interpretations and they were like, the seed that fell onto the difficult soil was actually the Jews and the seed that fell here was Gentiles and the seed that fell, it was like really crazy stuff that people were making leaps and bounds in interpreting. So that kind of interpretation can become like a really crazy mess and a real stretch and so... 
Like in the other mini parable, the one about the children in the marketplace, we could ask a million questions if we were trying to make it an allegory. Who played the flute? Who didn't dance? Who did all of these weird things? Are John and Jesus the musicians? Or are the people listening to them the musicians? It can get weird. Anyway, so when reading parables, which we're going to continue doing this year, don't think everything's an allegory and has a one-to-one ratio. Simple. Um, And then the second one, this one I found way more important and interesting, is look for the point of tension. So when we're reading a parable and Jesus is telling a parable, usually he's trying to teach something, right? And so to me, I decided to stop thinking I knew what the interpretation was ahead of time. And I started asking myself, what's the punchline? Um, What is Jesus trying to say to this crowd? And if I were here in this moment, who would have been confronted by his words? Because he's usually confronting someone or some idea that people have, some wrong idea that people have. And so instead of assuming that I know the interpretation, um, I've tried to learn how to find a point of tension and then uh, ask, who is Jesus punching in the gut? Like, who is he really offending right now? Somebody's going to walk away offended or challenged to think, right? And then to take it a step further, how could Jesus be offending me? (laughs) What kind of bad attitudes... Or things that I'm doing, what might I believe that's not true or um, isn't loving or is against what Jesus was all about? So with that in mind, tonight we have two mini, two little parables. um, And I want to think through what they might mean for us. I just want to apply them to our lives with the, like, sections three and four, and then I'll include a little bit of section one and two in that. Um, So the first parable that we hear is the one after John the Baptist's disciples come to talk to Jesus, right? Um, And if you remember, I don't know if it said this in the text or not, sorry, Um, but John has been in prison, So he's been really far removed from what Jesus's ministry looks like. He's isolated. He's alone. And he clearly isn't quite sure that Jesus is doing everything he expected him to do anymore. And so John sends his disciples out and he says, are you the expected one? Are you the one that um, we thought was coming? And... John had preached about the expected one, right? He'd been the voice in the wilderness, and he had shared about repentance. And he said that the expected one was going to bring justice and was going to um, bring the kingdom of God. And I think that in some ways, Jesus' acts of compassion and healing and love and his proclamation that the kingdom of God was at hand wasn't meeting John's expectations. So, 
like Jesus's compassion didn't equal justice to John. He wasn't seeing the connection or he was doubting it a little bit. And so he sends his disciples to confirm. And then after they leave, Jesus continues talking with the crowd. And he kind of addresses their religious expectations, right? And then he compares their generation, the crowd's generation, to these children that are kind of playing in the marketplace. They're playing a game. And so what I imagine this is like there's kids in the marketplace and in the first verse that says, we played the flute for you and you didn't dance. It's like they're playing wedding, like, we're playing the flute and it's a happy song and you should dance, but you didn't dance. And then in the second one, it's more like a funeral dirge. Like, this is depressing. We're playing a game where everybody should be sad and depressed and you didn't weep. And so in both situations, the reaction to the game is wrong, right? So with the flute, they should be happy. With the dirge, they should be weeping. But they're not doing what they're supposed to do. So I think that Jesus' main point here, again, there's not an exact one-to-one ratio, um, is that to the people around them, John was too strict. John seemed like a crazy person in the wilderness. He was eating bugs, and he was telling them all to repent, and he seemed like he believed in an angry God or something. All justice. And then Jesus is too lighthearted for them. They're like, ah, you're eating and drinking and enjoying your time here. And what's wrong with you? And so John and Jesus kind of seem like opposites almost. And really like people's reaction should have been to them like to like one a lot and to dislike the other. But for some reason, they're like questioning both of them, even though they're kind of doing opposite things. And so that funny verse I see um, that says wisdom is justified by all her children. That's a really odd verse to me. But I think that Jesus is saying um, people who are truly wise understand wisdom they're going to see that both men were sent from God. That the wisdom is seen by the children who accept it and accept that God sent both of them. Okay. Moving on. That section to me is the one that least connects to everything else I wanted to say, but I did want to touch on it a tiny bit. Um, So for the second parable... This is the one that connects all of chapter 7 together to me. Um, It's the one about two debtors. So Jesus is invited to a dinner party, and it's at a Pharisee's house. And I named this section the Banquet Crasher, but in my research I learned that banquets weren't as private as we think they are. So it wasn't actually like an enclosed private dinner party where like 12 people were there. Um, It was kind of like an open house and lots of people could come through. So it seems weird that she like crashed a banquet, but it was a little more open than our like 
you come over, I shut the door so we don't talk to anybody else, kind of dinner parties. Um, so this sinful woman comes into the banquet, and she starts kissing Jesus' feet and washing them with her tears, and she anoints them with perfume, and she even lets down her hair, shocking, like it should be up and covered and not seen by anybody except for her husband. She even lets her hair down to dry Jesus' feet. I guess she didn't come prepared with a towel or anything. Um, And in the midst of this, Simon, the Pharisee who's there, he thinks to himself, if Jesus was really a prophet, he'd know what kind of woman this is, and he wouldn't let her touch him. And the kind of woman probably a prostitute. We don't actually know that. It doesn't say that, but it's definitely implied. Um, And this woman was well known in the city by everyone. Everyone would have known who she was and what she did. And um, we don't know that for sure, but if she was one, then the perfume was likely held on on a necklace around her around her neck, and she uh, would use the perfume for her clients, if you catch my drift. So, like, she'd make herself smell good and then use it for I don't know what with clients. So, Jesus, so often with the mind-reading trick that he does, he says, like, Simon's just muttering this to himself or thinking it in his mind, and Jesus says to him, Simon, I've got something to say to you. We need to talk. Um, And then he shares this parable of this creditor and two debtors. And one owes 50 denarii and the other one owes 500. But neither of them is able to pay. And the creditor decides to forgive both of them their debts. And then Jesus forces Simon to answer this question. Which one is going to love the creditor more? And then Simon responds, Well, I suppose, I suppose it's the one who owed him more. And Jesus has this way of just forcing people to, he kind of backs him into a corner and forces him to recognize his own bad attitude. Um, and and Simon's so reluctant about responding, like, I, I guess if you're going to make me answer this question, I'll answer the question. Um, I feel like Jesus still does that today. He still forces us to recognize our own bad attitudes. He still kind of phrases things in a way, at least with me personally, when I'm reading the Bible, when I'm just in prayer and trying to listen to him. He can kind of push me to that spot where, like, I know what the answer is, and I don't really want to tell him because I know that I have a bad attitude about it. Um, Simon, he was guilty on this evening of a lack of hospitality. So... Jesus goes on to tell, to tell Simon, like, you didn't provide water and you didn't kiss me and you didn't 
anoint me with oil. He says all of these things, right? And some people think that Simon deliberately didn't kiss Jesus, that he deliberately didn't provide any water to rinse his feet, and that he deliberately was sliding him. Um, Other people disagree, and they think that this was an oversight, but it wasn't an outright insult. But either way, this was very rude. It was just the things that Jesus mentions are kind of like the minimum level of hospitality in Middle Eastern culture at this time. So Simon was being a terrible host, and he'd invited Jesus. He was, Jesus was kind of the guest of honor, and it was just rude. But the greater sin that Jesus is pointing out in Simon is the one of religious pride, one that I think I'm guilty of for sure, and there are probably other people in this room who are guilty of it. Jesus basically says to Simon, this woman that you're looking down on compensated for your rudeness. You failed as a host, and now you're looking down on her display of love for me. And on top of that, her presence here is a sign that she's repented and that she desires to be healed and saved and whole. And you don't seem to have any concern for her. You don't care about her restoration. That's not on the surface of the text, but it's implied. And I wonder how often am I more concerned about my reputation than the restoration of other people? So to quote a very prestigious source, um, (laughs) urbandictionary.com, says that the word extra, okay, (laughs) is defined as over-the-top, excessive or dramatic behavior, way too much, anything excessive, unnecessary, uncalled for, inappropriate, or out of place. Anything that shouldn't be there or shouldn't have been said. My youth group kids will be so proud of me right now. (laughs) So I feel like Simon is accusing this woman of not only being a sinner, but he's also turned off by her extravagant display. He's like, okay, you're just being extra right now. Stop. And I feel like there have been times in my life with new believers or with other Christians of any type. type, um, There have been times of my life of my life when I looked down on people who were passionate about their relationship with Jesus. And tonight, as I was thinking about this, I was like, why? Why have I looked down on people? Was I afraid of them and their like over-emotionality? Like, you're just too emotional. Was I afraid that I would be judged by other people? Afraid that those people would be labeled a fanatic, and so I'd get lumped in with them? Have I been afraid that their passion is unsustainable? That these people are seeking like a mountaintop high or a summer camp experience and that they're never going to have a steady faith that will last a lifetime? Have I looked down and thought I'm better because I'm not so swaying with the wind and so emotional and extravagant? 
But then I realized Jesus didn't think this woman's response was extra. He didn't think that being overcome by emotion was bad. And you know, you can be passionate without being emotional, but you can also have some emotions without like getting rid of all of your logic and rationality, right? Jesus was overcome by his emotion when he passed by the widow's dead son. He was heartbroken for her. She'd lost her husband first, and now she'd lost her son. And when we look at that story earlier in Luke, I don't know about you, but I didn't think to myself, oh, Jesus' compassion for that woman, that was just over the top. But a lot of times I think we equate our works with our worthiness for God to do something. And it's interesting, this widow, she didn't ask Jesus for anything. Maybe she didn't even know he was in town. Jesus wasn't begged or pleaded with. No one had to even talk to him. And he just stopped a funeral because of his compassion. He stopped a funeral without anyone saying a word, and he raised the dead because he loved the people. And in the story of the centurion, the Jewish leaders say that he's worthy of a miracle, worthy, because um, he gets along with the Jews and he built their synagogue, right? And the centurion recognizes that he's done nothing to deserve Jesus' help. He says, I'm not even worthy for you to come into my house. He's humble, and he's full of faith that Jesus can do something for him. And Jesus is amazed by the centurion's simple trust. And so Jesus heals the servant from a distance. I think he was going to heal the servant When he got to the house, either way, he didn't consider the worthiness of this man at all. He doesn't comment on it when the people are like, I'm not worthy. He is worthy. He doesn't really, it's a non-issue for him. Um, So while the centurion, I think, like, verges on the edge of feeling worthless almost, like, I'm not worthy. Simon, the Pharisee, in our final story, Like, swings us to the other extreme. Like, I'm worthier than everyone else. Don't you see that? And in the parable that Jesus tells, the two debtors, they're on a completely level playing field. You know why? Neither of them could pay. It didn't matter if it was 50 or 500 coins which is equal to roughly like a month and a half's wages versus a year and a half's wages. It didn't matter how much they owed. Neither of them could repay the lender. And Simon obviously had categories of sin, right? He thought like, well, this woman, she needs Jesus a lot. Or she needs God a lot. And she's not in right relationship with him. And I'm just, I'm great. And this woman had probably heard Jesus speak 
maybe the day before, maybe some other time, she'd heard about him or heard him. And she knew that what was being offered to her was forgiveness and a new way of life, like Tyler talked about last week. She wasn't forgiven as a result of her display of love. Her display of love was a result of her gratitude for what Jesus was doing in her heart, what God was doing in her. So sometimes as followers of Jesus, I think it can be really easy to get um, into a certain mode of reading the Bible. At least for me, it can. We can become so familiar with the stories um, that we uh, just remove ourselves from them and we don't ask God for any personal application besides what we already have in our minds. Um, And then even when we do try to hear from God or we ask him about personal application, sometimes I think we put ourselves into the story, but only from one perspective. So sometimes I like to play a game where I imagine myself in the situation as a different character in the story each time. Um, This morning, Tyler told me that when he's reading the Gospels, he usually imagines himself as one of the 12 disciples, um, but not always as one of them in the moment. So sometimes he approaches reading the Gospels as if, like, Jesus already died and rose from the dead, and 20 years have passed, and he's kind of looking back at it, and he's thinking, those were such good lessons I learned back then. I I asked him to clarify that. I was like, wait, tell me more about this. Um, So like he doesn't put himself in there today. Like what were the disciples experiencing in that moment? It was kind of like a reflection. Um, And when I read the Gospels, I usually put myself in the position of a Pharisee, which I think is really good for me. It gives me a really tough perspective, and I'm like endlessly hard on myself. So it's kind of natural that I would put myself in that spot. But I also think that after being in the church for a long time, I'm guilty of religious pride, like Simon, right? And I feel like that's such a turnoff to people who don't know Jesus or have never experienced um, his love. And so, because I want to guard myself against having that attitude of being better than people, I imagine myself a Pharisee who needs Jesus to challenge me. But then, I feel like there's a third possibility here, and I'm not very good at this one. Um, I'm sure there are probably people here who read the Gospels, and they put themselves in the position of the people who are being healed or forgiven of sin. And there are some of us who just have such amazing testimonies of life before Jesus and life after Jesus um, that you get what all the commotion is about. Like it totally makes sense to you that people were standing in awe of who Jesus was and sharing with all of their friends. And sometimes I don't read from that perspective. I usually read from a Pharisee's perspective, and, and tonight I could be sitting there, think, sitting here thinking, like, I'm Simon. I could be doing so much better at loving people. I really need to change my attitude about people. 
I really need to recognize that I need Jesus and not put people down, not put people into two categories. There's no 50 and 500 categories. But what I was really challenged to do, um, I feel like this is the Holy Spirit for me, and I hope it is for you too, is what if we decided to read this through the lens of the woman who was offered forgiveness? She's a recipient of God's undeserved favor. And she responds to Jesus with overwhelmed gratitude. What would happen? How would my life change? What if instead of thinking to myself, oh, she's just being extra... I actually let God overwhelm me by his grace and his love and his joy today. And I thought to myself, when's the last time I really let God, I don't know, mess me up a little bit and make me think through things and, and um, work on something in me? And when's the last time that I really let him or let myself have some emotions toward my relationship with him instead of being so in my head and trying to figure everything out and follow the rules and and I'm a Pharisee. When's the last time that I was so overwhelmed by Jesus that I just had an outburst of joy or an outburst of gratitude or love for him? Because the sinful woman and Simon are equally in need of God's grace. And Jesus, despite being very challenging, equally offers them grace. Jesus wasn't going to Pharisees' dinner parties for no reason. He cared about them too. He cared about them being restored and getting a right idea of who God was too. And between the sinful woman and Simon, who accepts God's grace? And who lets God's grace change them? I really like how Eugene Peterson describes um, the section about the widow's son who was raised from the dead. He says that the people who were there who witnessed it, um, they all realized, this is a quote, they all realized they were in a place of holy mystery that God was at work among them. They were quietly worshipful and then noisily grateful, calling out among themselves, God is back looking to the needs of his people. When is the last time you've realized you were in a place of holy mystery with God? When's the last time that you went from quietly worshipful to noisily grateful? My professor um, from Parables of Jesus, his name is Dr. Lyle Story. He's, he's elderly. He's in his 80s, I think. Lyle is such an older name. Um, <laughs> He wrote about the sinful woman and the two debtors, and this is what he said about this passage. Um, He said, Those who are poor and humble understand God's grace extended to sinners and express that gratitude with a reckless abandonment. This forgiven woman 
becomes our mentor. Those who are warm and gracious are people who've been forgiven. We feel themselves who feel themselves to be in a position of utter dependence on the grace of God. I'll read that again. Those who are poor and humble understand God's grace extended to sinners and express gratitude with a reckless abandonment. This forgiven woman becomes our mentor. Those who are warm and gracious are people who have been forgiven, who feel themselves to be in the position of utter dependence on the grace of God. So my question tonight for myself and for all of us is, can we let this sinful woman be our mentor? This woman who who seemed like she was just doing too much. Like, where'd you come from? Why are you here? What are you doing kissing his feet and crying on them and wiping your hair on him? It's kind of a weird picture. Why are you doing that? Um, But I think she spent so much of her life feeling like she wasn't enough that it didn't even cross her mind that she could be too much when she received grace. Um, She wasn't being extra. She wasn't thinking, ah, I'm doing too much or self-conscious or worried about what other people thought. She was so overwhelmed by Jesus' love for her that that was no possibility. Being extra wasn't possible because she just wanted to express her love back to him. And so tonight we're going to spend some time worshiping God through music. Um, And I just want us to think through that. Like, could the sinful woman be more of a mentor to us? I know for me, I personally need to let need to let that overwhelmed gratitude type of feeling come in sometimes. I need to stop and recognize that there are places of holy mystery. And um, that God is here and he is looking to the needs of his people. So I'm going to pray for us and then we're going to sing. But you can also sit quietly and ponder things, read through the passage again, um, do what's going to help you uh, respond to what Jesus is saying to you tonight. God, I thank you that you are so good to us and that you have compassion, that you allowed yourself to be overwhelmed um, with the needs of your people. And that you were willing to stop a funeral. That you were willing to heal a centurion servant from from a distance. And that you were willing to lift up the dignity of a sinful woman in the presence of a really holier-than-thou Pharisee and a big crowd. Jesus, help us to learn what it means to worship you. To give you our love and to, and to be overwhelmed with gratitude for what you've done for us. We love you in Jesus' name. We pray. Amen.